0: So now we're back from the world of just pure presence and nature to the world of concepts and ideas. Even though we sit here talking about no concepts, the whole fact of sitting here making noise and exchanging words, and it means something, hopefully, is it's so amazing, but it's so conceptual. So um, <clears throat> I want to uh, go on a little bit more from what Joseph was talking about last night about this, uh, the experience of of no lasting self, I just want to talk about it in a way of, uh, very experientially of pointing our practice, our moment-to-moment awareness, back to this sense of self as it seems to arise and exploring what it is. But first. Um, I want to take a little diversion because when we begin to talk about, as Joseph did last night, when he gives that, that talk about concepts and what's the reality underneath the concepts, almost without fail, especially for people whose first retreat it is, uh, if he had done a question period this afternoon, he would have been bombarded with questions about if there's no self, fill in the blanks, you know, because it's the concept of it in itself, in hearing about it, until it's, until it's our actual experience, until it's experiential, intuitive understanding, uh, true or not, it's just another concept. And what that tends to do for us, certainly I spent years in this, is we take that concept and, and the concept alone isn't enough to blast through, to help us see through the inaccurate perceptions or the inaccurate concepts we've been living with all our life. And in fact, there's no real reason to believe that the idea of selflessness is any more true than the what seems like our experience of being a pretty ongoing, identifiable self. So what often tends to happen in this experience is certainly happened to me, often and for years, is that it sets up a sense of the mind just starts to spin. You start to think about it, try and bring it into experience, we try to analyze it, and we really can get into quite a, a energy, a mental energy, of thinking about, analyzing, figuring out, comparing, all those words. What is this sense of no self? Trying to figure it out with our minds, with our reason, with our logic. And I wish my saying this would be enough. I know it won't be, but I'll say it anyway. It won't work. It will never work. We can never figure out with thinking, with our mind, with uh, opinion, with logic. We can never somehow figure out or make sense of this idea of no-self because it can only be understood experientially. It can only be something we touch with our awareness free of previous concept. And so what can start to happen is that we take really fascinating ideas like no-self and analyzing and thinking it can be really interesting and it can feel like... We're really practicing, we're really grabbing a hold of something juicy here. But what it actually can turn into is doubt. Doubt is is somewhat obvious when it, it manifests as a thought of, I can't do this, or this is stupid, or I don't think they know what they're talking about, or whatever. But another way that doubt arises in our experience is that it masquerades as analytical thinking. So we're sitting sitting there going, we start to pay attention to it, but that's not me, that can't be me, is that pain me? Now, if there's no me, how come I feel that pain? How come I have an opinion? And the mind just starts going and going and going. The way doubt manifests as a hindrance, when Joseph spoke of the hindrances the other day, the way doubt manifests is just this, the mind is spinning and spinning, thoughts are going, and there is a complete inability when doubt is present for the attention, for the mind to just land on anything. It'll keep just landing and skittering off. And, and when it's just masquerading as analytical thought, each experience will just trigger off a whole nother set of ways to think about it. And <clears throat> believe me, I've spent a lot of time doing this. And at first it seems somewhat fulfilling. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot more interesting than all the other stupid thoughts. I was sitting with for days before. This is Dharma thoughts, so this is okay to hang out with. Just notice, if it's the sense of spinning, spinning, not able to touch anything, it's doubt, no matter what the content is. On a level of moment-to-moment practice experience as you're sitting, say, or walking and you notice this, the antidote to doubt is sustained attention. So, if you, for example, you're thinking about whatever. I'm using no self as the example, since that's what I'm talking about. But you're thinking, you're analyzing. Oh, what about this? And you notice that. Okay, label doubt. It's the hindrance. Simply noticing it, and then bring your attention just to something that's happening. It doesn't matter what, but hopefully not the thought, because you get too sucked in. Come back to the breath. If that's too subtle, come back to a sense of your body sitting, a sense of your butt on the pillow, your hands touching, any physical sensation. Sound, if that's a clear one for you, but if it's a little vague, you might get sucked back into the thought, back into your feet walking. So if you can get the attention just to land on something, and as soon as the thoughts start, come back again, sustain the attention. What happens is the attention again deepens, lands in the present moment, And those thoughts just start to fade. You don't have to resolve them one way or the other, but you're just coming out and landing in the moment. That's sustained attention. That is the momentary, the kind of practice model antidote to doubt. Of course, the big trick is recognizing it as doubt. On the sort of... What gives us the energy to do that, sort of the bigger moment-to-moment, level of practice is that we have to um, come out of our usual way of trying to figure things out, and this is beyond just doubt, but is being willing to move from our reliance on knowledge, from our reliance on reasoning, to be willing to sort of Surrender into whatever's happening without prior expectations, and in a way you could call this faith. In a way, faith is sort of another strategy for being with our experience that's different from, different from knowledge. One of the uh, I'm going to give you two definitions of faith. A word that I don't know how you all relate to the word faith, depending on your different backgrounds and conditioning. For me, <clears throat> I didn't have—I didn't really have much of a religious upbringing, being Protestant, and we went to church and all. But somehow, it doesn't seem—it didn't seem to stick or really have much of anything. And so, my associations with the word faith were sort of um, secondhand. But it would be more. It was more. It was more of a sense of um, belief on demand, belief in what somebody told me, belief in a particular set of doctrines or in a particular person, without any kind of. Of course, my logical mind would want proof. Without any kind of proof, and without anything to rely on, just this um, demand to follow and believe a doctrine or what somebody said. The faith that I'm talking about in our context of practice here is not that at all. It's not blind belief. It is definitely not anything that demands an abandoning of our own intuitive sense of wisdom or understanding. It's not like the faith like the Jim Jones kind of thing, you know, where you follow the leader and drink poison, Kool-Aid or whatever it was, and everybody dies. That's like the worst connotation of faith, and I'm not talking about anything like that. <clears throat> These are two different definitions I've, I've read in different commentaries of faith. One is the drive towards that which cannot be described, that kind of yearning, the drive towards truth, towards whatever you want to call it. The second one is faith is confidence based on verified knowledge or you might call it verified faith. And this is really where this Vipassana practice takes us. The faith is a kind of combination of confidence and trust. A trust that will let us be willing to be with our experience without expectation, without need for uh, payoff or justification, without knowing anything that's going to happen or having a preset idea and confidence is the strength or the willingness the fearlessness that lets us be able to to meet experience without any kind of of promise it's what lets you sit here and be with an unbearable pain in your knee and there's no promise that anything wonderful is going to happen from that but there's some confidence and there's some trust that allows one to do that, hopefully. I mean, hopefully it's not blind faith, you know. Hopefully it really begins to come from our own verified experience, confidence based on verified knowledge. But knowledge, again, intuitive knowledge, not the kind of knowledge that I grew up valuing, as the highest truth and as the kind of point of safety and place of finding self-worth and self-value. So I don't know about you guys, although I imagine a lot of you, given the training that you've had and the jobs that you do, have had to spend a lot of your life acquiring certain sets of knowledge, even just going through regular school. You know, and I was, I, I was really very good at it. I could take in whatever things I was supposed to know, reasons, facts, ways to do things, explanations for what the universe was, whatever it is, take it in, memorize it, internalize it, spit it out, but also unknowingly taking that knowledge as a view of the world and even more in some way as a sort of a security sort of it's like a resting place. If I have a knowledge, a way to describe a certain event or a certain experience or what's going on, you know, in the woods, if I can go out in the woods and name the animals and name the trees and the weather patterns and what kind of clouds and what's going on, then I feel like I have a certain kind of safety, a certain kind of security, some place to rest. In, In some way for sometimes this sense of knowledge, a body of knowledge, which can certainly be very useful. I'm not talking about we throw out all knowledge, you know, but it's to see it for what it is. We can take this body of knowledge and it's as if it's a, a, a bastion against insecurity, against having to live and dance in the, what's actually true, the constancy of unknowing, of the fact that we never know. What's going to happen even in the next moment? And I find that uh, for me, and I'm probably not the only one, that certain sets of knowledge can really serve as it's a, a comfort, but it's a way to hide. And even without wanting to use it in that way <clears throat> uh, without wanting to use it as a way to hide, but that sense of security, we really can identify, with whatever the knowledge is, and it, it blocks our potential or our willingness to perceive other possibilities, to open to another possibility at all. There's a story that the Buddha told, which is sort of shows this, about uh, a widower, a man, a poor peasant who had a young son, lived in a small village of Hudson, The the man, the father, had gone away for the day, and while he was gone, some bandits came and basically destroyed the village, burned all the huts, and killed the people. But they kidnapped his son and took his son away. So the father comes back, finds everything destroyed, finds some bones he thinks are his son, weeps, weeps, so distraught, so upset, but really this is what happened. And he kind of, he took the ashes and wore it in a little bag around his neck and was just... Distraught, couldn't recover, rebuilt his house and was living, but was just totally miserable. But had totally bought the story this is what happened. That became knowledge. These bandits came, destroyed the village, killed my son. And at some point, his son escaped and late at night came back to the village, found the hut, was banging on the hut, calling, Father, Father, let me in. And he was so caught in his description of what had happened as being true that he yelled down, you know, don't mock me, my son is dead, this is so painful. The kid kept yelling, you know, father, let me in. And he couldn't, the father couldn't open to the possibility that maybe he was wrong to the point that he never went down and shooed his son away and they never saw each other again. So that's kind of a, you know, heart-wrenching, exaggerated story. But it, it makes the point of how locked we can get in knowledge, in what we think is a true description, and it blinds us to being able to even explore, I mean, to even stick his head out the window and say, oh yeah, maybe it could be my son, let me check it out. That's what we're doing all the time. Assumptions of who we are, what Joseph was talking about last night, in our assumptions of of time, our assumptions of who we are, of past and future, our assumptions of body, all of that. They keep us locked in. What this quality of faith, the confidence to meet what's happening with a trust to enter it unknowing, really fully, is it lets us meet data freshly. And what I've found in my practice and in talking with other people, I know I'm not alone, is that I've approached it, of course, wanting to find the answer. What's the truth? I'm basically looking for another explanation, for another set of knowledge, because that's what the mind knows how to do. I think, well, okay, maybe this one isn't right, but if I find another perfect explanation, then I can rest in that. But the more I look, just with the simplicity of mindfulness, look into the knowledge we have it seems to break apart and instead of more answers we find more mystery this is from the new york times a couple of years ago although i just saw an update on it recently and it hasn't changed that much In the science section it's talking about the largest galaxy ever detected whose discovery was announced last week which includes more than 100 trillion stars and measures more than 6 million light years in diameter. The galaxy is 60 times the size of the Earth's galaxy, the Milky Way. Big, big. This newfound galaxy is located in the center of an either even larger clump of galaxies, a cluster of some 1,000 galaxies. Called Abel 2029. <laughs> <laughs> they had to name it. Like what is naming? A thousand a clump of a thousand galaxies. What does that do? Do we somehow own it? We don't have it, you know, under control or something? Anyway, this is just leading up to the point. The, the astronomers hope that further study will provide clues to the role played by a mysterious substance called dark matter since there doesn't appear to be enough ordinary matter in the universe to account for the huge gravitational forces that would seem necessary to cause all this clumping of all these galaxies scientists propose the existence of vast amounts of invisible matter that elude detection because it emits no radiation and according to their prevailing wisdom ninety-nine percent of the universe Consists of this missing mass. Yeah. <laughs> it's like us. It's the same, actually. Like, what did Joseph say? All our matter is about the size of a particle of dust. But we can't just take that on word value. I mean, it's funny, but it doesn't mean anything. But what we need to do is have the faith, the willingness to try, that will keep bringing our attention into our experience to really look, to really need it, to really be willing to open into the possibility of the unknown. And of course, since this faith is based on our verified experience. When you first come to a retreat like this, your first retreat, you can't have that kind of verified experience. And the question often comes up, you know, what got you guys here the first time? It comes up in my mind for anybody who comes on a first retreat. But there's a quality that's talked about of before there can be verified faith, there's a quality of mind that is called Bright Faith, and in some way it's, it's some, something in us is lit up by a quality that we experience in someone else. It might be someone you talk to, and either something they said kind of lit up this something indefinable, indescribable in us that gets us to say, well, maybe that's worth a try. Or some quality in the person something you read or something you just observe and how certain people behave, whatever. Whatever it is, thinking about it, something got each one of you here. And when there's this quality of bright faith, it's, just, it's like a, a brightness, an energetic quality of mind and a willingness to look. And if you came without that, it would really be hell. Because it would be so hard, especially the first few days, without some, something inside of us that yearning towards what cannot be described that, that keeps us looking, that keeps us coming back to the practice beyond the reasoning intellect. But this is not sustainable, this kind of bright faith. It's really based on looking outside of ourselves for verification or for strength or for confidence. And that can't be sustained when we hit a really difficult patch, you know, when you, when you start a retreat and your first really difficult patch, if that comes before any kind of bright patch has come, it's really hard, you know, because there's no personal experience to give us the confidence with which to, to meet this, that, that it's somehow worthwhile. So this, this bright faith is going to shift. It's not sustainable. It's going to waver. It's, it's going to fade away. That when you hit that space of, why did I come here? That's so dreary. It's so controlled. It's so much suffering. You know, that bright faith is really fading. And it fades fast sometimes. <clears throat> but luckily, luckily, this I have so much, real trust in just the truth of things, that if we simply have enough willingness to keep meeting our experience with a freshness, it begins to open up. And in some way, we begin to experience for ourselves various aspects, not just of what we've been talking about, but of just the truth of how things are. So just one little experience of sitting with pain, and then seeing, you can just be with it, and all the fear and all the aversion either fades, or you see the difference between the aversion and the pain, and you see that the pain itself is not suffering. Even if it's just for a second, that sort of is uh, an insight, a sense that things are different from how they seem on the surface. And even uh, such a moment of that can, can somehow energize us for days. which is lucky (laughs) because sometimes we just get a couple of little moments of an insight like that and a lot more moments of kind of being caught in the seemingly ordinary way our mind has of relating to experience because that seemingly ordinary normal way has been all our life, has been so much more deeply conditioned. What I have deep trust in is that actually the power of truth it's, it's so recognizable when we touch it, in whatever form. It's, has so it's just so obvious somewhere in our hearts, in our beings, that that is, is what's true, that it's truer than our ordinary ways of relating. That one moment of truth is more than enough to really light up days of seeming to be struggling in the mire. One of my teachers said that. A spark of truth can burn up a mountain of lies. It's not like we have to have equal time somehow. So what begins to happen, and it, it will happen uniquely to each person, that you begin to have experiences that somehow show us our ordinary assumptions. We might not even even known we had these assumptions, aren't exactly accurate. And it gives us the strength and the courage and the trust to keep going, to meet the new experience with a faith without needing to know what's going to happen. So gradually what this quality of faith I'm trying to describe enables us to do or opens us to is to much more consciously be able to enter into each moment knowing that we're, we're entering totally into the unknown. You know, Maybe when you came on this retreat, there might have been a sense of that. I might try and find out from everyone what really goes on, but somewhere in one known, I don't have a clue what's really going to happen here. It's something I've never done. But what's actually the case is every moment of our life, we think we know. I mean, this play, it's funny, I'm talking about opening to the unknown and every moment we don't know. And we have this incredibly rigid schedule where almost every moment of the day is planned. You know, I say, 2.35, where are you going to be? And you go, oh, I'll be in the meditation hall, you know, sitting on my pillow. Maybe. Probably. It actually, it blows me away when I come back from India, which is a wonderful place for much more consciously experiencing the fact that you never really know what's going to happen. No matter what I get up in the day and plan to do, the one thing you could be sure of is that's what wasn't going to happen that day. It's just, it's great for that. It keeps us off balance, but it's much truer to how things actually are. What I get amazed by is coming home and after a couple of weeks I have my day book and I have my hours planned and I look at it and mostly that happens. That's what really amazes me. I make a a, like now. I can tell you where I'm supposed to be in August 15th of next year, and probably there's a good chance that might happen, which is amazing. It's really amazing, but it's it, it it sustains the illusion that things are under control. It sustains the illusion that. Sure, we have to make plans to live in a relative reality, but it sustains the illusion that just because we make plans, they're going to happen, that somehow we can control that. When actually, we don't have a clue what will happen in the next minute. When you sit down in a sitting, you might have an idea, but actually, there's no clue what's going to be the first experience that arises. A sensation in the body, a sound, a pain, the breath, an emotion, who knows? When we get down to that level of moment-to-moment experience through mindfulness and concentration um, where we're really breaking down and things are just arising and passing, we experience that much more vividly. i will sit down and it's sort of like, open up the doors and who knows what's going to happen. It's all a show. And really our life is like that. How often in in your work, no matter how much we have to plan and carry out specific projects, and we have a real sense of what we want to happen and a projected sense of what we really think will happen, but we don't know. It's completely out of control. And if we are so solidified around, this is what I think, this is what's going to happen, and we can't think of alternatives, you know, we get really thrown off when something totally other happens. Or it should be so still and silent here. How about when out of nowhere came that jet yesterday? What's this doing here? It's not allowed in the wilderness. Who knows? I used to go through phases of, you know, thinking, how long do I think I'm going to live in a country that's relatively peaceful and not at war? I mean, I just assume I'm not going to wake up to machine gun fire. And this might seem kind of crazy, but actually, I don't know. We never really know. We never really know if you could have an aneurysm and, and just drop dead. I mean, we never really know. And that's the truth of things. And some part of our psyche really hates that. <laughs> really doesn't want to live in this ever-present insecurity sense of not knowing. And I, I think... The kind of bottom line place that our psyche or, our, or we come to rest to look for some place of security is this sense of self. It's the one thing that if we don't look too closely, feels like it's always here. I know I'm me. I mean, everything's changing. I look really different but, than I did when I was eight, but I know I'm me. And I feel the same, and I relate from my memories, and I recognize people when I see them again, usually. And it's this sense of a place to rest. And there's something that can be really scary to, to our conditioned mind to think that there is no place to rest, that really ultimately we don't ever know. <clears throat> and we want to have some, some solidity. And when one thing falls away, then immediately we'll, we'll, we'll fall back onto another. Watch that in your practice. If there's something that you felt was really solid, the sense of the body, and you begin to sit and experience it as just shifting energies and nothing solid, and it might be far out, far out. But watch. The mind will create another view or another description or opinion. Okay, this is how it is. I'm a sense of shifting solid energy shifting and moving around. That's me. And we've just fallen back into another level of somewhere to find security, somewhere to take a rest. When I was, uh, I was teaching, uh, helping teach a retreat in Yucca Valley in the desert of Southern California outside of Palm Springs a few years ago, and if you live in L.A., you know this experience. While we were there on the retreat, we had a couple of earthquakes one kind of medium in the middle of a talk, and, and then a stronger one a couple of hours later, like a six-point something. Well, the earthquake itself, since I had never been in one, was actually kind of interesting. You know, actually, Franz and I were standing outside, and you can kind of see the ground roll and explosions in the distance and this sound. And it was like, wow, you know, scary. It does something definitely to the body, but it's, it's sort of far out. And then it stopped. And so, okay, well, that was neat. That's fine. But what didn't stop is that there was a series of aftershocks like every three minutes, every five minutes for the next at least 24 hours. And then, you know, with decreasing frequency for the rest of the retreat. And where I had felt like I really handled it with great equanimity and very present and I see things change and no attachment, by the end of a night, of aftershocks every three minutes, and of course the radio always says, 25% chance of the big one coming in the next three days, so that just puts that in your mind. Is this an aftershock or is this a big one? You know, you can't just say oh, aftershock. By the end of like 12 hours of that, my nerves were a wreck. You know, it's kind of, because every time a shock would start, our heater would start, would start really rattling, you know, so it, it couldn't just kind of cast unnoticed. We'd hear, rattle, 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 and every two minutes. And I came out of it really deeply feeling this sense of how unquestioningly I relied on the earth to be there for me, you know, to be solid and to someplace I could just rest, you know, the worst that can happen, you can just fall on the earth. And to, to viscerally get it over and over, sorry, not that one either. Uh, it just it really touches into this sense of anatta, of not-self, and the fear that comes from this ongoing insecurity and kind of, not franticness, but that the mind wants to find somewhere. It's not okay hanging out in nowhere to take a stand. <clears throat> but actually, it's not... It's, n- it's not even the, the movement. It's not the not being able to take a stand that's the problem. It's not the, the never knowing or the unknown. The problem is that sense of I that's there in the midst of the unknown, that I that's arising, clinging to whatever, that's positing a need for security. It's like the aftershock's not a problem, What it's doing to me is the problem. Where am I going to find security is the problem. When we're just opening into the moment as it is, there's no problem. When you were out today, if you had even one moment where it was just pure beingness, maybe it was hearing, maybe it was smelling, maybe it was warmth, where there was no discursive, description, where there was no trying to figure anything out, you weren't trying to name the species of birds, just simple being, in that moment, where's the problem? There's no needing to know what's going to happen next. There's no referring back to someone it's happening to. There's no needing to know what happened before. It's just this moment. And in that, without this... Excessive, ongoing, referring back of every sense experience to a sense of self, without that, with just the pure experience, there isn't any problem. And whatever needs to occur in the next moment, the next moment occurs. If there's some response that needs to happen, that also occurs. We don't need to figure it all out ahead of time. So it's not that the sense of pure being means, which is one of the questions that comes up a lot, if there's no self, then how am I ever going to do anything? Who's going to do things, you know? And we can talk about this sense of pure being and say, well, that's really nice, but what about if it starts to rain and there's lightning and you have to get up and go inside? As if, actually, the two have nothing to do with each other. You know, there's a sense of being, and then there's a sense of being with lightning, and then there's a sense of a thought arising. It could kill me. I think I'll go inside. <laughs> that could be done with or without clinging to a sense of self. It can just be clear, clear seeing. Anyway, this' a sidetrack. <laughs> anyway, this sense of self, the faith is what can over and over give us the confidence and the trust to be willing to meet experience with this quality of not knowing. And the quality of not knowing will let us investigate, not with thinking, but with presence, in a much more open way. Look at the data freshly, so to speak without having interpreted it before we've even perceived it. When we begin to explore the sense of I, of mine, even the thought of not clinging to something as a sense of I or mind, it it can really shake up that sense of deepest resting place. And I think that's the reason why often, in or out of formal practice doesn't matter, but often when, in, in a space of awareness, you touch a place, a deep place, where there's really viscerally, intuitively getting it, oh, there really isn't any me. Often what comes up is fear. It's like we're really, it just is kind of an, a natural response to losing actually something we've never had in the first place, but something that we think we had. And often a sense of fear and even terror can come up. And that's fine. I mean, we don't like fear very much, but the fear itself doesn't mean that something's wrong. Often fear, as we touch it in our practice, is is really more like a messenger that, oh, we're moving into unknown territory. And so... Rather than being afraid of the fear, again, we have to have had some confidence and some clarity of practice. We can just meet the fear as another arising emotion, just be with it, see it come, see it go, but we don't have to take it as a messenger of doom. And we don't have to take it as, oh, something must be going wrong, fear's coming up. It often means something's going really right, and we're hitting the place of our unquestioned assumptions and they're beginning to be broken down. We don't always understand that rationally, but that's sort of what goes on. So, to begin to use our practice sometimes, I find it really fascinating. It's one of the ways I really love to explore when I'm on retreat, is to begin to consciously use the mindfulness to explore the actual sense of me, or mine when it's arising in a moment and what I'm, everything I'm going to say now about exploring it I'm talking from what I've discovered in exploring it and other people, but I don't want you, I really am not saying it so that you'll take this as another explanation but hopefully just maybe it'll, you know, give you some interest to look and explore on your own and never take any answer that your mind comes through, oh, this is what the self is, or this isn't, as the final resting place. If you can keep that interest, keep that childlike innocence, that trust alive, to keep meeting the data, keep exploring, and and not stopping in any assumption that now I know what the self is or isn't, you can really begin to look. And what, what I'll say what we begin to see, what I begin to see, is that what seems so solid, unquestioned, is actually, it's not that we're destroying the ego through our practice or getting rid of the sense of self, getting rid of self to substitute something else. It's that we begin to see that what was so solid, seemingly, is nothing. It's nothing solid there at all. And in touching a sense of anatta, which is the Pali word for, for no separate self, and losing, if we lose the sense of self, we don't lose anything. It's not like something changes and we can't function, because it's not there in the first place. It's just our perception that's inaccurate. We're interpreting perceptions inaccurately, and that's all that's going on. This is from uh, a man who was named Nisargadatta Maharaj. He was an Indian sort of wise man, saint. Uh, He died in the last decade. He says, My actual experience is not different from yours, what he actually experiences, but it is my evaluation and attitude that differ. I see the same world as you, but not the same way. Everybody sees the world through the idea she or he has of herself. As you think yourself to be, so you think the world to be. If you imagine yourself as separate from the world, the world will appear separate from you, and you will experience desire and fear. It really is all our perceptions, our descriptions, and our imaginings which is so hard to believe, and when we begin to really look and see this over and over, then what's really hard to believe is how powerful these inaccurate perceptions and these imaginings and these inaccurate descriptions are. So amazingly powerful. So it really takes this this willingness to keep looking. So we look and we see that when you have this feeling of of I, of mine, however it manifests, you know, it might just be the thought, I'm really hungry, or it might be, you know, I'm bored now, I wish this talk would end, I wonder what I'm going to do tomorrow, my knee hurts. It doesn't matter how, but when we have that sense, when you notice it there, uh, rather than focusing on the object, see if you can, and your mind needs to be a little quiet for this, obviously. See if you can turn your attention back on that, that I or mine, the actual experiential feeling or thought or emotion, whatever it is, the way that, what in that moment are you calling mine? And we might be focused on, like, I'm hungry. We might actually be focused on the feeling of hunger or wanting food. But that might not be the actual sense of I, who am hungry. And sometimes we're so used to that I feeling, it just feels like it's always there, that we overlook it. So when your mind's a little quiet, it can be a really, uh, I really love it, turning around the attention and seeing, well, what's I? Who's I? Not thinking about it. I don't mean investigating with thought, but with this sati, this mindfulness that just lands right on that feeling of I and see what it is. We begin to see that the, the sense of I or mine, the birth of self, it's arising and passing, moment to moment. There isn't anything that lasts, what we thought was unchanging. Buddha Dasa, who was a Thai, uh, quite a Thai meditation master, says the self is merely a condition that arises when there is grasping and clinging in the mind all it is and in my experience so far which I've not come to the end of so far that's really true so when there's that sense of I I'm hungry I want this this hurts I want this to go away turn around and see what's the experience that's being grasped and clung to and don't even assume it's being grasped and clung to because I say it turn around and feel and see So there's a moment, every time that sense of I arises, there's a moment of sense contact. Maybe there's a smell. There could be a grasping at that smell. There could be a thought, hmm, smells like pizza. And then there could be a thought, oh, I'm really hungry. So there's grasping arising with that sense contact. Turn the attention not to the thought of the pizza, but to I and see what it's landing on. And what I find is each time that I do that, it's a different actual momentary experience that is somehow being interpreted as I. So for example, when I say, I'm talking right now, there's this sense of I, I turn my experience, and it's just—it's a sort of very vague physical sensation that I can't even quite locate. Sometimes it could be an image. Sometimes it could be, be an actual sensation of pain. Sometimes it could be a thought. Sometimes I have a friend who said every not every time, but often when he turned on the sense of I, it was as if he had this very subtle mental image of his face. And that would be I, as if, you know, experience was coming out of that. I'm just giving examples. It could be anything. But turning and looking and what's been really liberating for me is each time it's something different. There isn't so far something there or some emotion or some experience or some anything that's I. And that's what gets really fascinating to begin to see. If you can sort of see it, if it's something that one can experience right away, it's an arising and passing phenomenon. There's no continuity to it. There's no... Ultimate solidity is clearly not self. So just beginning to explore in this way. Classically, and Joseph spoke about some of these last night, I just want to mention, classically in the Buddhist psychology, they talk about what makes up a person, so to speak. The different aspects of experience that there tends to be this clutching, this identification, which is really just the contraction of grasping around an experience. There's five aspects, which makes up all our experience, that we tend to might land on as saying, I, in a moment. So there's the body, which Joseph said last night, which is obvious. Sensations in the body, the whole sense of our body as a whole. What I found more subtle, which isn't actually body, but I, if I don't look, I think of it as body, is image of the body. So there might be a sensation and over that subtly there's an image of me and there's a sense of identification of grasping of me, my knee, and that's I in that moment. It can be very subtle. And I find often as I'm sitting there's just sensation and there would be no sense of self, no sense of body. It's as if sensation's coming and going in vast space of awareness. And then there's this subtle background image of my body sitting here. Just an image of this body. And not seeing that, that's, in that moment for me, it's a sense of carol, a sense of self. And it's as if if it's a, a, a container over an experience that has no containment and has no location, but it gives a false sense of container in that way. Anyway, that's just something to look at. The second aspect of experience that we often will be the grasping of self is what is, is called, uh, say, feeling tone. When I spoke the other night about how each sense experience we experience is either being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, which can come in quite subtly. And usually pleasant, we move right away to aversion, or, or unpleasant, we move to aversion, pleasant to wanting it, neutral to spacing out. But often we don't notice that feeling tone because it's, it's quite subtle. Well, that's one of the areas, again, one of the five aggregates that makes up what a human is that we easily don't notice, identify with, we cling to. So there's, a say, a pain in the knee and it's unpleasant. And you might really be looking at, mindful of, sensation, really seeing the sensation, and there's not a sense of I'm that sensation, but somehow there's a real sense of involvement and self-identification there. You can't quite figure out where. So you're clear you're not the pain. Often the clutching is around that subtle feeling of unpleasantness, of pleasantness, of neutrality. I just mentioned that as something else to notice, is that real sense of separation. Sometimes we don't notice that feeling. The third, again, Joseph mentioned last night, the consciousness, the knowing faculty, which seems ever-present and very subtle, and that is easy. I think, in some ways, that's the last one we identify with. It's the most subtle and the most difficult to see as separate from me. I know hearing. I know that I'm paying attention. I know that there's unpleasant feeling. I know that there's awareness. It's easy to think of that as I. So without saying it is or it isn't, just notice if that's where this sense of I or me or mine is landing on. The fourth area is perception, which Joseph talked about again last night, and which is another really fascinating area to explore. Because it's something we can really begin to see, sometimes in simple ways, how easily we identify with our perception, take it as true, and then how something else can come in and we can see our perception was totally whacked out. It had nothing to do with what was going on, but we would have defended it to the death. Yes, this is how it is. Just a, a little example. Last, the other night, about two nights ago, <clears throat> uh, we was sleeping with the window open uh, for the first time, and I woke up in the middle of the night with some like weird stuff going on in my body. So I was in, you know, that kind of weird, vulnerable not quite, you haven't quite put all the pieces together yet state when you wake up in the middle of the night like that. So I was just lying there. And I gradually became aware of this really loud roaring noise, just so loud coming in. And first thought, well, that must be the river. But I didn't really have too much confidence in that that thought or that perception. And it just seemed to get louder and louder and all these undertones and currents, and I thought... I've been here for five days, and this is the third year I've been here. I never heard the river sounding like that. There's no way that can be the river. And then I remembered a, uh, when I was a, I was a nun for a while in Thailand, and I was staying at one place that was in the forest, and it was on a, a little small river deep down in a gorge. And one night, all of a sudden, just like that, this tiny little river got huge. It came all the way to the top of the gorge. It flooded our whole area, and it made so much noise. It was unbelievable. So either there's some weird mechanical kind of plane or tank coming in here, or this river is flooding, and it must be you know, totally up, up to the porch by now. And I was absolutely convinced of that, because my perception was I had never heard the river be that loud. Impossible. So I finally went back to sleep, checked it out in the morning. I walked out course, the river's really loud. I mean, it's been there all along, really loud. I just never noticed it before. You know, now I can't walk down the road without hearing the river babbling. It's, it's, really, it's really there. It's really loud. I would have sworn on a stack of Bibles or whatever that that river never made a noise like that before. So just that willingness to check our perceptions, you know, and where we can be so sure and so identified and we can be so wrong. That's what we're doing. And the last area is everything else. Which... <laughs> <are> <laughs> I sometimes think that's kind of how the Buddha did it, all these categories, and then there's one that sort of lumps in so much. It's called mental formations. So it includes uh, what we were doing today in the instruction, intention, which is a really interesting one because you can see how... Intention is intention to move, intention to do something, intention to direct the mind in a certain way, intention to come back to the breath, intention to move to hearing. And it's so easy to feel like that's me. You know, well, who who's meditating? Who's paying attention to the breath? Where does this intention come from, if not from me? It's a very subtle place of investigation. So again, just look and see when you identify with the intention. If that's you, then where are you when the intention goes away? Sit there and notice intention to scratch your eyes, like Fred was saying. If that was was you, then during those ten breaths when you didn't scratch, you were gone, right? And then come back again, if that's how intention is us. But explore it. And that's where I mean don't stop. We turn to intention. It feels so much like us. There can be a tendency to stop really looking. And then we move into, of course it's me. What else could it be? And where could this intention come from? And blah blah. and we're back into that spinning mind of doubt again. So exploring intention. <clears throat> and the other aspect I just want to mention of mental formations is, of course, our old friend thought. And thought is a really... Sometimes we can see thought, obviously. It's a lot of what our practice is. But because it can come so often, and we get so used to it, we sometimes don't notice that the thoughts can turn into an ongoing commentary that is actually, we're making up our sense of self. We're kind of describing ourselves to ourselves as we go through the day telling ourselves different stories. If you stop and look, you might be telling yourself a lot of different stories about yourself. In a way, we're making it up as we go along. But if we don't notice thought, there's this identification with certain ones. For instance, some might go through, Wow, I'm really doing good. I'm really a far-out person. Those kind of go by, maybe. We don't really identify with them too much. Another one comes up, I am such a schlump. I'll never be able to do this right, I'm too tight, I'm too this, I'm too that, I'm a failure. Those ones we might really buy into and believe and carry it around, just like everything we do, Tell, I don't wash the dishes right, I made a big clanging noise when I was serving myself, everybody was looking at me, you know, I'm not working mindfully enough, I'm moving too much in the hall, you know, and not noticing all the times in between when these thoughts aren't happening, when there's no sense of self at all, But stringing them together and telling ourselves this self-story, it gets really solid. One time a couple years ago, I was on a a two-month retreat, I think, and it got really clear to me. I had just seen a movie just before the retreat, which if you can avoid that, you know, or listening to music just before a retreat, I'd advise avoiding it unless you want to really watch the replays for a long time. So I had seen The Fugitive. So I'd be, at least, you know, it wasn't too bad of a movie. It could have been worse. But I'd be sitting there, and I'd be getting flashes of, you know, scenes and dialogue and this and that of The Fugitive. Not, of course, in order, jumping forward and back in time. And then after a while, it hit me. That would go for a while, and then it would switch, and the Carol movie would come on. And it would be flashes of memory and future planning and images of myself and things that happened and forward and back in time. And at some point, it hit me. It wasn't like they were, you know, like it was a correlation, like a a simile. They were exactly the same. There wasn't any difference. It wasn't that the Carol story was more real at that moment than the flashes of memory from the fugitive at all. It was just images coming up and thoughts. But there were particular ones that there was a sense of grasping a sense of identification around and so I made that Carol. I didn't think I was, you know, this, I can't remember his name, but I didn't think that was who I was. I knew that was a movie. Well, guess what? So is the other. I mean, it doesn't mean that I don't know what happened in the past and that I can't relate, but in that moment, what was really happening was just images arising, thoughts arising. Emotions are rising and passing, and whether it was about Carol or what's-his-name, it really wasn't any different. And that's what we're doing all the time. We're telling ourselves stories, there's thoughts, we don't notice which ones we clutch at and make a story of and the other ones that go by. So pay attention, see which ones there's this grasping of self around, and which ones go by. Just because there's a grasping that sense of self around some thoughts, that doesn't necessarily make them true. I wanna point that out. You know, in fact often, not with everybody, but for a lot of people I talk to in retreats, the tendency can be to really identify with the negative ones. The negative self images, the ways we're not good enough, our failings. And if something beautiful happens or we have some beautiful experience, your thought comes, Well, I'm really a very kind person. Don't get too carried away with yourself, The mind will come in right away. Remember when you did this, and you didn't give that, and, you know, and, and, oh yeah, that's right, thank you for bringing me back to truth, you know, because we're buying into a particular story. It's all just thoughts. Imagine the freedom, the spaciousness, of not having to grasp and solidify around any of them. And it's another way that we can come at this exploring the sense of self, by, the way I've been talking is really sort of like the way of precision of being with the breath, the way of precision of bringing your attention into the experience of I or mine. We can also approach it from the way of spaciousness, sort of like being with hearing, which is at times tuning into the sense of whatever word you want, spaciousness or awareness or emptiness is really the more classic term, just Emptiness. Things arise and pass. Emptiness doesn't mean nothing happening. But it's empty of clinging. It's empty of aversion and grasping. It's empty of self. And in that, without looking for anything, sort of like Joseph was saying with the cars going by, you're not looking for anything. But when this sudden sense of grasping, the sense of clinging, the emergence of self arises, you really can't help but notice it when you're noticing and tuning into the emptiness give an example. One time I was, I was on another self-retreat in a really lovely spot in California. And I was sitting high up on a hill, um, sort of like you were doing today, hopefully, just sitting and being really aware but with my eyes open. And no just spaciousness and peace and everything coming and going, really beautiful. No thoughts of me, just presence. And some turkey vultures came flying out, really close, because I was high up. And I said, oh, that's far out. So i not really clean, just that's far out, just another arising experience, spaciousness, peace. Of course, somewhere in it, the thought arose, this is really far out, I'm so empty, I'm so spacious. But so that came and went too. And more turkey vultures came, and they're circling. And all of a sudden, they were circling like right over me, and getting closer and closer. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the thought arose. I'm the thing. They're circling. You know, they think I'm dead. And I had this moment of genuine panic. It it only lasted a moment, but it was really everything I could do. I almost stood up and screamed, I'm alive! I'm alive! It was really interesting. Well, in that moment, emptiness, spaciousness, no sense of self, real freedom and ease, it vanished, you know, just like that. Total contraction, solid sense of me and other, fear, something to do. That's how it is. You can really, when we're just letting ourselves attune to the emptiness, when it's present, when you can notice it. Sometimes we can't notice it. There's just too much going on, or there's too much clinging, or there's too much stuff. But other times, when it's a little more quiet, or there's not a particular identification with anything, just... Open up and really let yourself just tune in to the emptiness. Get comfortable with it. Dasa talks about this often as a way of practice. It's not like we're in total cease of all suffering. I'm not talking about ultimate enlightenment or anything, but just inclining to emptiness. And as he says, we experience in our ordinary day-to-day life many, many moments of this emptiness. Often we just don't notice them, but we can begin to incline the awareness to them. Not to do anything, not to be me, not to grasp it, just to get more comfortable and more content with that ease, with that emptiness. And in that, when the sense of grasping at some experience arises, the sense of self is born in a moment, it's really pretty obvious. And it's not something we have to fight it's just really interesting to see how it can go from a moment of total ease to a moment of complete panic you know and fear that i'm going to be attacked by turkey vultures and it can the next moment it can all go again so really seeing the arising and passing of this sense of self not being content to stop anywhere but keep exploring, watch it come, watch it go. And in each experience of that, it gets the the old conditioning, the uh, old assumptions begin to weaken. And without logically knowing it, you begin to experience much more of an ease with what comes and goes in our life, with what comes and goes in our emotions, with what comes and goes as experience. Just... Uh, an ease in the dancing with things. It's not that stuff disappears, but it's that sense of I, that constant self-referencing, that begins to ease, that we don't take so seriously, that we see through altogether. And in that comes a real, a real sense of joy in dancing with life. I just want to end with this from a Tibetan Lama. <clears throat> Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already there, in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do. Whatever arises in the mind has no importance at all, because it has no reality whatsoever. Don't become attached to it. Don't pass judgment. Let the game happen on its own bringing up and falling back without changing anything. And all will vanish and reappear without end. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Nothing to do, nothing to force, nothing to want, and everything happens by itself. So let's just do nothing quietly for a few moments.